Welcome to the Sensibly Speaking Podcast. This is Chris Shelton, the critical thinker at large, coming at you for more podcasting greatness. And as you can see, I am joined this week again by Stephen Tiger, who has written extensively about Christian apologetics. And I had a great time talking with Stephen just a couple weeks ago about this topic. And I thought, well, I've this is a topic I've wanted to do more with or more about. Um, I don't particularly consider my channel, you know, focused on my atheism or or even really an atheist channel. But at the same time, I've talked about it so much that I feel a little bit left out when I'm not included in the atheist YouTube channel. So I have a little bit of a of a weird identity problem with that. But regardless of of my branding with this, the topic is fascinating, and because it delves into the the um, lengths to which I suppose people will look for reassurance, comfort, and most important of all, certainty. And this is something that I have spoken at length about because it was one of the things I identified in myself after shortly after leaving Scientology and realizing that one of the hooks, one of the things that had kept me involved in it for so many years, decades actually, was the fact that it was giving me answers I thought were true. It was giving me not just answers that were in some obscure text, but I, a group of people who agreed with me on these topics, on this on this writings of L. Ron Hubbard. And we were all sure, we were certain that what we were talking about was real and true, and we were able to reassure one another about this because we were all in this bubble world sort of echo chamber situation. And that really is one of the ways you can look at what cults or cultic influence is, is it's, is it's sort of a, a this enforced or reassured sort of view of things that really, you know, in, in an ultimate analysis sense, really has no basis whatsoever in any facts and, you know, in any evidence-based reasoning. But we can, that doesn't really matter to our emotional center or fulfilling our emotional needs. Things don't have to be true in order for us to cling to them as though they're true. And this fits right in with this topic of Christian apologetics because there's quite an extensive <clears throat> library of this material. And I've only touched my foot into the into the, the the edge of the pool of that a little bit in in talking a little bit about, you know, St. Thomas Aquinas and some of his arguments and looking into this and trying to figure out what, you know, what all the Christian denominations are about and and all of that. And so I've invited, you know, people who know a hell of a lot more about it than me to talk about it at length. So Stephen uh, after my whole intro there, again, welcome back to the show. Thanks for being Thank here. Chris. It's good to be back here. Awesome. I thought um, you and I were talking a little bit before the show about what we might talk about today, and this topic of certainty seems to be an underlying theme that that I think will carry us through the entire show, but we've got lots of little bits and pieces to pick up on this and get into. And first off, there was this, uh, I thought we might help define for the audience and myself, um, there was a, a, we covered last show quite a bit about um, this idea of presuppositionalism. This is a label that's used for presupposing what exactly? What, what is presuppositionalism as an, as an argument? It is uh, uh, 
a category of apologetics, Christian apologetics. Mm -hmm. um, the, the presupposition, the specific concept that must be presupposed according to this viewpoint is the authority of the Bible, the infallibility of the Bible as God's own divine word. Okay. So, and, and as I mentioned last time I was here, the presupp presuppositionalist um, apologetic um, starts with an absolute truth, which is that we do need to have certain axiomatic understandings in order to be able to cope with any information at all, to interpret any information at all. And I use the example of um, Euclid's axioms with which he began his set of geometric theorems. And an axiom, again, is uh, an unproven, unprovable concept. And it can't be proven because it is the most basic concept that can be. You can't prove it by appeal to some more basic concepts because this is, these are the most basic concepts. And again, from, from Euclid's um, axioms, uh, a, a good example is you can draw a straight line between two points. Now you can't prove that by, by appeal to more basic concepts, that's as basic as it can get, but it's self-evidently true. That's the important thing about axioms is that they are unprovable, but they are self-evidently true. Right. In other words, almost anybody could, through observation alone, determine that that thing is true or accept it as a plausible version of reality. Absolutely. Right. Uh, you know, it's, very, it, it's almost impossible to argue against something that is self-evidently true. Right. Provided, so, if, well, well, but we have to, <laughs> we wouldn't be having this podcast today if it weren't the case, though, that some people will accept as self-evidently true things which are not, in fact, self-evidently true. So this is why absolutely, we even absolutely. break this and, down, and, yeah. And, and, and this is why the pre-sup argument in which the thing, the concept that must be presupposed is the authority of the Bible, that is a preposterous axiom because it is not at all self-evident. It is not um, provable. It is easily disprovable. In fact, it, for those who might already be having a chip on their shoulder about what we're talking about because we mentioned the Bible, if we were to say that Joan Collins' latest romance novel is absolute fact, and it's a self-evident truth that everything in this romance novel is absolutely true, I think anybody would, you know, almost anybody would go, well, that's, come on now, hold on, that doesn't make any sense, right? Well, and, same and logic applies enough, here. <laughs> interestingly enough, the notion that a romance novel <laughs> is absolutely true is far more plausible than the claim that the Bible 
is absolutely true. And the reason is that a romance novel is the work of one author who may have taken pains to make sure that everything is self-consistent. Mm-hmm. That there's nothing that stands out that says, well, that's crap. It, this part conflicts with that part. And this other part is simply contrary to established historical or scientific fact. That's right. So, so, so the notion that a romance novel is infallible, is authoritative, is actually more credible. Understood. Saying, of course, it's not true, <laughs> but 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 it, but it's it, it is an in, it is an indication of just how absurd the presup claim that we must have a starting point. Yes, we do, and that that starting point must be the Bible. No, it is not. It cannot be. Right. Because, because um, if you look at the entire history of religion over the past few millennia, uh, we see that the Bible has been incessantly contentious, the focus of arguments, of wars. How can you possibly say that something so unclear, so self-contradictory, that this must be accepted as divine truth, it's absurd. It's absolutely absurd. Well, let me ask you, let me ask you, one, uh, to me, a fairly obvious question about the presuppositionalism, just to kind of maybe further drive some stakes into the heart of it. The first thing that occurs to me, somebody who is not married to any version of the Bible, and in fact, I have three different versions on my shelf I'm looking at right now, which version of the Bible is it that's supposed to be the inerrant one? Because I really don't understand how with a book that is had that anybody can acknowledge has been translated through Greek, through Aramaic, through Latin, um, alone just just through those languages much less if we go through you know asia or russia or korea or you know all these other places where where these works have been translated that you know which which one are we talking about is the presupposed right one well I, i'll be as generous as i can be and i'll say that the answer to that legitimate question is that it isn't any one Bible because, yes, we have to acknowledge that there are certain translational differences, uh, different ways of rendering um, uh, idiosyncratic, uh, I'm sorry, uh, idiomatic expressions. Mm -hmm. There are um, uh, some questions about the, um, uh, the, the actual historical validity of certain verses, were they there originally or were they inserted later on by editors? And yet with all of that, they will say, there are certain concepts that are common across all versions. One, God exists. Two, God is the creator. Three, Jesus is the son of God. Four, sin is real. Five, you need salvation in order to avoid hellfire. Okay. Uh, and and, that and isn't it... That salvation requires faith. 
Okay. All right. So these might be the the things you're laying out right now might be actually much more axiomatic statements of Christian faith. They, they are taken as axiomatic. Right. Okay. But even there, even there, they are not as axiomatic as you might think. For example, in my book, Doctrine Impossible, uh, I devote considerable attention to showing why doctrine on sin is self-contradictory. Now, sin is as basic a concept to Christianity as anything, because if there were no sin, there would be no need for salvation. If there's no need for salvation, there's no need for Jesus to have lived and died as a man right. by, by Christian doctrine. So even as seemingly axiomatic a concept as sin is highly questionable. And as I show in my book, the, the very notion of the origin and nature of sin is intrinsically self-contradictory. And, and give, give one, maybe one example as to how that is. Okay. According to doctrine, church doctrine, Christian doctrine, mm -hmm. sin entered the world through man's disobedience, Adam and Eve disobeying God's instruction to refrain from eating the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. If God had created Adam and Eve perfect, as perfect beings, they would have acted perfectly. Mm -hmm. It is self-contradictory to say that a being is created perfect and chose to act imperfectly. Mm -hmm. That cannot be. So they will create, they cannot have been created perfect. And is that a, is that a biblical claim that Adam and Eve were perfect? Nothing, no, nothing is is claimed in the Bible about Adam and Eve's perfection or imperfection. Okay. It is not stated, but we have to raise the question. Mm. Now, if they were not created perfect, then at some point in their lives, they would have behaved imperfectly. Just as you cannot say that a perfect being would willingly act imperfectly, disobeying God, you cannot say that an imperfect being would act perfectly throughout the entirety of his or her life. That's also absurd because that negates the functional difference between perfection and imperfection, mm. saying they act the same way. Of course they don't. That's ridiculous. So if Adam and Eve were going to behave imperfectly at some point, inevitably, why was this one occasion so important that their disobedience, their imperfect action, tainted the entire future of the human race? After all, Adam and Eve at that point were innocents. They had no knowledge of good and evil. They had no experience with obeying instructions. They made a mistake. 
Yes, they were naive. But why did this mistake, which was going, which was more likely to happen on this very first instruction that God gave them, the very first instruction, prohibitive instruction, that God gave them, don't eat that fruit. With absolutely no prior experience, this occasion was the most likely time when they would screw up and behave imperfectly. Mm. And yet, this is the one occasion when their disobedience, their error, their imperfection was so intolerable, according to church doctrine, was so intolerable that the entire future human race was damned without salvation. Now, that's nonsense. That's just nonsense. Now, it's worth noting, I've mentioned the last time I was um, did the program with you, that the Jewish take on the Adam and Eve story is quite different. Mm-hmm. Uh, Adam and Eve are viewed as childlike, gullible dimwits, perhaps. Um, yes, they screwed up. They erred. Try not to err. You made an error. Well, try not to do that anymore. But because Judaism, unlike Christianity, does not have a doctrine. Well, for one thing, it's not a soteriological religion. Soteriology refers to the religious concept that what really counts is the afterlife, that everything that happens in the physical life is really directed towards what goes on where it really counts, which is the next world, the next life, the afterlife. There is no such concept in, or certainly nothing spelled out in detail in Judaism as there is in Christianity. And that, that by the way, I'm just taking a side to mention, um, when I was much, much younger, um, I was told that the only difference between Judaism and Christianity was a, a disagreement over whether or not Jesus was a divine figure. No, that's not true. They are completely different religions, entirely different. Yes, they are. Yes, they are. So, um, so to get back um, to where we were taking off from, which was um, looking at the presuppositionalist claim that sin is real and sin requires salvation. Yeah. The only way to avoid damnation, that these are um, specifics that you could take from the Bible across all editions of the Bible and say, well, this is what must be presupposed. And I'm showing that no, sin is not axiomatic. Sin is a self-contradictory concept. Okay. And, and what is self-contradiction? Mm-hmm. What is self-contradictory cannot be true. This is the 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 the, the um what what's called the argument ad absurdum. When you take uh, a concept, a claim, an assertion and you follow it to its inevitable conclusion, its inescapable conclusion, 
and you end up with a self-contradiction, an unavoidable self-contradiction that defines the assertion as false. Fair so enough. Sure. A, presu a presuppositionalist once asked me, and this this is the this is the truth. Once asked me, well, how do you know that self-contradiction renders an assertion false? And my answer is because my starting axiom is that logic is logical, rationality is rational, and facts are factual. And in the context of those axioms, self-contradiction renders an assertion false. Fair enough. So... Your so this argument then is is specified to somebody who, or whatever group of people would believe that we are dealing with an inerrant book that has that is self evidently true, and we don't even have to question that sort of thing. As opposed to groups that might have a more nuanced take on it, or might look at biblical stories as allegory or metaphor or symbolic. Absolutely. And, and here's an important thing, Chris, that, that I really think is, is, is vital. When a believer places axiomatic faith in a sacred book, in the authority of a sacred book, that person cannot understand the book. The fact of declaring it to be authoritative and, and inerrant precludes rational questioning of what is being read. That person may hold the book, turn the pages, register the words on the page, but that person is not reading, not reading for comprehension because their minds have closed off the possibility of questioning, of doubting. And without the willingness to look at something critically, to scrutinize it carefully, rationally, you can't say, well, I understand it. You can't. It's impossible. No, you're absolutely right. And this fits right out. What you just said is really just a rephrasing of what I've said many times, which is that the further down, I, I think it's a bit of a spectrum. I don't think it's a binary on off, but I do think that to the degree that you accept anything as ultimately true or as unquestionably true or as self-evidently true and and again nuance applies in all things context applies in all things we're not talking here about physicists with their axioms right we're talking here about faith-based issues when i say this sort of thing i'm talking here about extremism and and the and the degree that a person goes down this spectrum of extremism and accepts information as uncritically is as absolutely true, is uh, the degree that they're actually incapable of critically thinking or engaging with that information. Exactly. So, you know, you know, it was not all that long ago in the news. I, I don't remember who it was. Some uh, Christian clergyman, notable in some way or another who was asked the question, what if the Bible said something like two plus two equals five? Yep. And he kind of shrugged and said, well, 
I would have to find a way to understand that two plus two equals five. Now this shows the categorical unwillingness to question. That's right. Well, that's exactly right, which leads right back to this point I mentioned at the top of the of the podcast, which is certainty and yes. the need the need for that certainty. Because I think we're talking here. I, I, I try to couch this in, in easy to understand terms, not get all technical or weird or academic about it, but it ends up kind of reducing down to something that might not necessarily be a super satisfying answer for some people. And we can go deeper with it, but really it comes down to what I call emotional needs. The person has an emotion-based reason for grasping or holding on to or, or taking you know, this information and insisting that it absolutely positively must be true under all circumstances. This is, you know, another way we talk about this is black and white thinking. It's, it's very, very not, it, and, and we use black and white because these are the extremes of a color spectrum where there's gray, the shades of gray in between, but we don't acknowledge any of that. It's, That's right, right? because, because the, the binary mindset, black and white, yep. all or nothing, that kind of binary mindset provides great clarity. It doesn't provide reality. It, it's not a reflection of reality, but it certainly is very clear. Yes, I love. I actually, I'm going to totally steal that because I think that that's exactly the way to describe that. Is because there is nothing, and I can certainly speak to this from my own anecdotal experience as a Scientologist. There is nothing more clear then when you have a list of answers right in front of it, you don't have to imagine, you don't have to do the work of think, even thinking That's about true. this information. It simply is true. And anything that comes along that contradicts it, whether it's Einstein or whether it's your grocer, <laughs> it doesn't matter. That's wrong. This is right. You know. That, that, that's correct. You know, and there are a lot of ways that people describe this strange, common, but strange phenomenon. Uh, one, one way that I think is worth noting is called compartmentalization. Mm -hmm. it, it's a phenomenon by which someone who is otherwise rational, we're not talking about a, a, a person who is mentally disturbed in general terms, but an otherwise rational person who takes some cherished belief and compartmentalizes it mentally, shields it within his mind, shields it from rational scrutiny to protect it, to protect the certainty that that assumption, that that belief provides. And the need for certainty, which you know we've been talking around, um, uh, is very, very powerful factor in, right. um, in, in the appeal of Christianity. And we see, um, uh, uh, we see in that the devotion to the Bible as the inerrant or infallible or, or authoritative word of God. Uh, and and I, I hasten to add, I'm not talking about every Christian in the world, no. Yeah. But a lot, maybe most Christians, who do regard 
the Bible as authoritative. If you have an authoritative book, a book the, whose answers are right, are considered right, you don't have to worry, you don't have to be concerned, you don't have to have be uncertain. You know what it says is true. Some Christians are more subtle in their thinking. They'll say, well, it's true, but it's not always literally true. Ah, okay. Right. Fine. At least they're thinking about things. But what we are really talking about is the literalists, the fundamentalists, whose need for certainty is such that they have to take the Bible as literally true. Because if it's literally true, you don't have to worry about what it really means. It means what it says. That's right. And so, and so we end up with bizarre things like young earth creationism. Yeah, exactly. Well, let me ask you a broader question, and then I'd like to circle back and, and go deeper on a couple of these more extreme interpretations. Um, what percentage do you think? Have you, have your, has your research led to um, any demographic data in terms of what percentage of Americans are we talking about here that are all in with a literalist belief of the Bible? I don't recall the exact percentage, but it is not a vanishingly small percentage. It is a sizable group, a quarter, a third, uh, something like, like that. I, I believe right. it was at least that much the last time I saw data on that who doubt evolution. Right, right. And so we get these um, rather rabid arguments from this authority, these sort of uh, argument, you know, fallacious arguments that the that the Bible is the authority that we all must listen to. And you know, if that's your stable, <laughs> this is the thing that's true, and and all that science stuff is all just gobbledygook, then you're going to end up having some pretty weird versions of reality. Very much so. And that's, Absolutely. yeah, that's what we run into when we run into things like young earth creation. And, and, that, and that's the goal of the presuppositionalist argument. Yes, do accept the Bible as inerrant, as, in, as authoritative, as infallible. Right. Uh, that's exactly what you must accept. Right. And unfortunately, this has led culturally to some pretty oppressive and authoritarian sort of belief sets and ideas. I mean, we've talked about, you know, uh, on my channel, certainly I've gone into depth about uh, Bill Gothard, for example, and his rather drastic take on biblical interpretation and how you... Ooh, and absolutely. And, well, we see this also reflected in now, I mean, right now, right as we're talking, we see this reflected in legislation. I mean, coming out of Texas right now, we can talk... You know about whether wh whatever side you sit on the on the abortion thing, uh, I can say with certainty that part of the belief set that 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 leads to this kind of oppressive legal framework is the idea that women are categorically second class citizens that they must submit to the authority of the husband or father figure and and that this is biblical that this is this comes right out of the Bible according to these people this isn't some wild idea that they got out of nowhere it comes out of the more misogynistic takes from that book so absolutely so these absolutely. these beliefs 
have something to do with informing real world things that are affecting all oh, of us. This is me. And, and by, by the way, although I don't want to, um, you know, stray into uh, too deeply into debating what's going on in Texas. No, no, not I, at all. Just wanted to just wanted to relate these things. But but it's interesting to note that if the problem with um, say if the theological problem with the Texas law is that uh, women must be subservient to their husbands, what does that take if the husband says, uh-oh, you got pregnant. I didn't want that. You better go have an abortion. Right. <laughs> yeah, it creates issues, doesn't it? That's called a double bind. And yes, that happens all the time. And yes, it's as crazy making as you would imagine it to be. Yeah. So, yeah. so talking about the need for certainty raises um, what I think is a, a, an important parallel phenomenon, which is the need for uniformity of belief. Now, throughout the history of Christianity, really from the earliest decades of the emerging church in the first century of the Common Era, there has been a quest for uniformity of belief. And so early in the church, there were a number of Christological doctrines that had to be declared heretical. No, nope, that's wrong, that's heresy, you cannot believe that. Now, all of these doctrines, every single one of them is not really provable. Some of them were just made up whole cloth. Some of them were made up based upon some vague biblical reference, maybe from the Hebrew scriptures before the Greek scriptures were even written. But they're arguable at best. And yet, the church, as it was emerging, instinctively knew, no, we have to have uniformity of belief. What was the Council of Nicaea if not a bunch of men, bishops of the church, who got together to make up a set of rules saying, well, these are the doctrines that are true, mm -hmm. and those other doctrines are false. And somebody who had a dissenting view such as Bishop Arius, was expelled from the council because he was promoting, he was a Christian, absolutely believed in the divinity of Jesus, but he had views that were inconsistent with the detailed doctrines that the council, that the other members of the council, I should say, had determined, well, these are true. We declare that these are true. And throughout the whole subsequent history of Christianity, wars were fought, atrocities were committed, slaughters took place. Now, I'm not talking about Christians versus non-Christians. I'm talking about Christians versus other Christians because of the need for uniformity of belief. Who cares whether 
one unprovable belief about God is absolutely the same as somebody else's unprovable belief about God. You say, oh, well, it's not unprovable because here, here's my biblical basis for what I believe. But that other person with a different view can say, but I have a biblical basis for my beliefs too. So the only rational conclusion from that kind of scenario where you have two conflicting doctrinal tenets, both of which can be supported by scriptural chapter and verse, the only rational conclusion is the Bible is inconsistent. And that is the one conclusion that they will all reject. The first theologian will reject it. The contrary believing theologian will reject it. They will all reject it because the, the most basic belief in Christianity is the authority of the Bible. Now, let me, let me push back a little bit on something you just said, because logically, I think that there are other alternatives. Uh, when you mentioned that if you have two contradictory statements, then, you know, then we must acknowledge that there's contradiction. And I think to myself, well, are there also not other ways of resolving contradictory data, such as re-examining or reanalyzing the context in which you're analyzing them maybe 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 you're looking at it in the wrong context or yes. from the you yeah, know. yes you, yeah, yes you can okay um, but um it, it's worth noting that the argument about um context as an explanation for seeming inconsistency is actually hard to defend and i'll tell you why mm-hmm. uh, I spent my career as a professional writer for medical journals. Um, and um, if I had written an article, a scientific report, in which somebody could say, well, wait a second, you know, here in this paragraph, you said this, but in that paragraph, you said that. Now, maybe it's true that I said this in one case and that in another case, and in context, it's possible to resolve them. But if that happened, that's my error as a writer. I should never have allowed that kind of contradiction, seeming contradiction to appear. If I saw that it would be possible to interpret a, something contrary to something I said somewhere else, then it would be my responsibility to say, now, this does not actually interfere with what was said over there because, and I would offer that explanation. If the God, if God is the author, of the infallible book, you cannot say, well, God failed to provide that kind of contextual explanation. No, you can't. But I think most people, even those who engage in this sort of thing from the viewpoint that it's inerrant, still acknowledge that human beings are writing this stuff down. I mean, is it you know, did, well, it, it, that's a that's a very interesting point, and 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 the question then becomes: 
the human beings who wrote things down, yes, they did. Did they introduce errors because they're fallible human beings? Right. When you think of the telephone game where one person tells a story to another who tells the story, repeats it, repeats it, and after five or ten repetitions, the story that comes out is hard to recognize from what it was originally. That's right. So how 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 do how does the how does human fallibility not account for the fallibility of what emerges in the book that we have, the extant book that we have called the Bible, right. which represents countless oral tellings and retellings before the first written versions, and then those versions copied and recopied, and at every stage of retelling and recopying. Now, this is particularly true of the Hebrew Scriptures. At, at every uh, stage of, of that, uh, subject to revision and improvement and embellishment and alteration and editing, how can it possibly be the inerrant Word of God anymore? So the answer is, well, God inspired the Bible writers to prevent them from making any errors. I see. Well, this is just a completely unfounded notion. This is absolute nonsense. Right. Right. I mean, you could. it seems to me that you could take two, three different contradictory or, or at least conflicting, maybe not, they don't have to be fully, you know, mutually exclusive, but certainly you can look to history to see errors in translation or, I mean, this has been the work of, of lifetimes of people who have been studying the the original scriptures, the translations of those scriptures, the, you know, the move from it from Greek to Coptic to this to that to the other thing. I mean, it seems that you would find human error rife throughout this process if you were... That's that's true. And even when you say looking at the original manuscripts, (laughs) yeah, there are very few original manuscripts. Right. Well, the oldest we've got our hands on, I suppose, I would I would refer well, to they, as... They, they may know. simply have been. Now, there, there are some um, scriptures, some of the Greek scriptures, um, that are regarded as authoritative, the word of Paul, mm-hmm. uh, or the words of whoever it was who wrote the gospel accounts. Um, uh but certainly in the case of the Hebrew scriptures, there's nothing original. There's only the most recent manuscripts that still exist. Right. Those may have been preceded by an uncounted number of prior, earlier written copies. But but in but in terms of my uncountable oral repetitions. No, I understand all that. But what I'm saying is, even with what we've got, that's right. Even with just with the fat, just with the stuff, the limited amount of stuff we do have, even if we conjecture or even know there was earlier stuff, and of course the entire oral tradition is. I mean, I, I guess what I'm looking for here is: is there in your research of this, have you seen these sort of this this trail of knowledge that we have, if you walk down this trail 
and I know it's got it's more probably like a like a tree with a bunch of different branches going all over the place. But if you walk down these branches or walk down to this original source material that we do have, do you find you know is it is it provable is it showable that these people were divinely inspired and that no mistakes were made <laughs> or can we see absolutely not the exact and, opposite and, and, there, and there's two and there, i think there's two um at least two things to say about that yeah uh, first is that the question itself and and it it's an interesting question you pose but the question itself is really asking was the Bible ever a single unified idea that took shape by addressing a whole bunch of different topics, uh, topics in uh, creation myth and tribal history and tribal law, laws and rules and regulations uh, and so on? No, it never was. It, there's, there's absolutely nothing to indicate that, that anything like that ever happened. Right. It was a diverse set of independent writings in which people were telling their tribal history, relating their um, tribal myths, um, uh, delineating their tribal laws and customs, um, in which they were expressing their fears and hopes um, they were offering their good advice, their good practical advice, as we see in a book like Proverbs. Um, and, uh, and they were offering some poetic um, ideas, and they were offering uh, some kind of almost metaphysical notions and, uh, and sometimes expressing despair and sometimes expressing hope and asking profound philosophical questions such as we see in the book of Job. So th there is there was never any one single core theme that was original, that was inerrant and that, and that started branching off, to use your analogy of a tree, in all of those different directions. No, it was a bunch of diverse writings that were collected together to okay. form a set of Hebrew scriptures. And then later, many centuries later, uh, the Greek scriptures were grafted onto that, onto a translation of the uh, Hebrew scriptures to form what we call the Bible. And it's worth noting, and I may have mentioned uh, the last time I was on the program, that um, in the early church, and I mentioned that there were um, uh, Christological heresies um, that were um, had to be suppressed by the church. And one of them was uh, the heretical notions of Bishop Marcion. Marcion was... Um, uh, an early theologian, definitely a Christian, um, who wanted to completely jettison the Hebrew scriptures entirely from the emerging Christian church, didn't even want to keep all of the Greek scriptures, but certain 
um, parts of the Greek scriptures that he thought were unmistakable uh, and authoritative. He just wanted to keep those. And um, that just did not fly well with the emerging church. So he certainly did not regard the what we call the Bible as inerrant. He thought that the greater part of the Bible, the Hebrew scriptures, should be jettisoned entirely because it didn't deal with God. It dealt with Yahweh. And Marcion rejected the notion that Yahweh was the true God, the father of Jesus. He regarded Yahweh as a kind of a lower level war god, uh, a, 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 a kind of a nasty entity, a, an ill-tempered entity, whose major accomplishment was the physical creation of the universe. He was a craftsman. Interesting. Yeah. What an interesting but point that's, of view. That's, that's not identical to Gnosticism, mm -mm. but it shares certain ideas of the, of the Gnostics. That's right. That's right. That's fascinating. What happened? Okay, I, I, I guess I'm going to have to ask because I'm just suddenly curious about this. And since you've since you brought it up, it, it, it seems uh, I, I'm probably not the only one who's wondering this right now. How how did the Nicene Council, which, as I understand, it was the first organized effort to codify and put together a dogma that we now understand as the Christian faith, I'm not sure if it was the first, but it was the first that succeeded in establishing this is it. Yeah. These are the doctrines. And, you know, anyone who's attended any Christian church knows the Nicene Creed. Yes. The Nicene Creed is the kind of crystallization, a very brief crystallization of Trinitarian doctrine and Trinitarian doctrine is the main outcome, the main theological, doctrinal outcome of the Nicene Council. All right. And when you say Trinitarian, are we referring then to the Trinity, the doctrine of Father, Spirit, Holy Spirit, Son thing, that? that? That's exactly what we're talking about. Okay. Now, now the, the actual formal statement of Trinitarian doctrine was spelled out most authoritatively, not in the Nicene Creed, but in a, a, a different creed called the Athanasian Creed, um, which was actually not written by St. Athanasia, Athanasius, uh, but it was named for him, it was written after his death, but it was named for him because he was a very staunch believer in Trinitarianism. And, and in case people are have heard the term Trinity, Holy Trinity, Trinitarian doctrine, uh, there's a few things that should be said to clarify. First, the term Trinity appears nowhere in the Bible. Nowhere. The closest you can come to a scriptural reference to it is in one of the short uh, epistles of John. And that verse is now regarded almost universally as a spurious later insertion. Okay. So it wasn't there. Now, people can say, well, you can see a trace or a hint of the Trinity in other places in the Bible. 
Uh, but how do you compare traces that maybe hint at the Trinity against Deuteronomy 6, 4, chapter 6, verse 4? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. No mention of a three-in-one God. Mm. No mention of that at all. So the obvious question so the, is, why was uh, Saint, what's his name, Ophelius, whatever, why was he so uh, wedded oh, to this the, idea? The whole, the whole reason why Trinitarianism emerged is because Christianity is about the divinity of Jesus. Okay? Now, if Jesus is divine, that means Jesus is God. But... God is God. So how can Jesus be God if God the Father is God? If Jesus is the Son of God, how can he be God the Father? The only way to avoid that and avoid polytheism, you can't say, well, there was God and there's Jesus and there are two gods. No, that's not allowed. You can't have polytheism. So Trinitarian doctrine, which, by the way, didn't it was in a, a gradually emerging concept because the Holy Spirit did not enter into this business until later. And his role, the role of the Holy Spirit, was kind of vague and controversial at first. The, the, the real achievement of the Nicene Council was it kind of put the final stamp on Trinitarian doctrine and say, well, okay, here's what it all is. So Trinitarian doctrine gets around the problem of polytheism by saying there is God. There are three personages called Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They are all God. God is all of them. The Father is God. God is the Father. God is the Son, the Son is God. God is the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is God. But interestingly enough, the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is not the Father. So the three personages of the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, are all God and God is all of them, but they are not each other. And that's what is spelled out in the Athanasian Creed. And just because I'm curious and because I fairly recently learned about this as a thing, I'm, I'm, I'm just quizzing you on some on basically some random stuff here. But just in the course of our conversation, I find this interesting. I was recently confronted with the issue of transubstantiation. And, and this is a Catholic thing, right, where you have you're eating a cracker or a wafer and you're drinking, you know, some wine. But you are, you know, according to the um, idea of transubstantiation, you are literally, not figuratively, they, this, they are very clear about this. You are literally eating the blood and body and, and, blood and body of Christ. And yes. you go, well, how is this possible, right? Well, it transubstantiates, it transforms, it, you know, in your mouth or something, right? And you're like, okay, well, how is that supposed to work? Because if... If the holy wine, if you literally, if you believe that is literally turning to blood, 
then the, the you know an obvious question is how come I can't take the transubstantiated wine down to the down to the hospital and use it for blood transfusions, right? If it's blood, it's blood, right? So, and the and the, and the answer that came back when I actually did a little bit of a dive into this was that is that you have two levels of reality. You have a physical universe reality and you have a metaphysical reality. And both of these are true at the same time. So that, yes, at a physical level, it looks and, and if you put it under a microscope and you, and, you, and you analyze it, it's a cracker. It's a wafer. That's all it's ever going to be. That's what your body digests and that's the physical plane existence of that cracker. But at the metaphysical level which exists at the same time, it's the body of Christ that you are consuming. So I looked at that and thought about that for a while and went, okay, so they get to have their cake and eat it too. They get to have their cracker and eat it too. And and yet you have to split reality into two different things that exist parallel and concurrent, right? But are two, two different things. Is this whole explanation I've just given, that this is what occurred to me when you brought this Holy Spirit thing up, the, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, that they are and aren't. It's sort of Schrodinger's spirit. You know, it is and isn't at the same time, right? And, and I kind of referred to the Catholic, you know, the Catholic stuff as the, as the Schrodinger's wafer. I mean, it, it, it is and isn't. Is that kind of how this is thought of? Um, I, I think that the the reality or the interpretation of transubstantiation of the um, um, communal elements, uh, the, the wafer, the wine turning into the body and blood of Christ. Um, I don't think that that, I don't see it personally as necessarily linked to Trinitarian doctrine. Okay. I realistically, of course, I was just looking at the concept of multi, you know, multiple levels of existence at the same yeah. time. Yeah, I, I think that that the interpretation of the uh, transubstantiation uh, simply has to do with how much, how how seriously, literally, you take the scriptural passages in which Jesus says here take this bread and eat of it, this is my body. Here, drink this wine, this is my blood of the new, of the new covenant. Yeah. Which is you. Um, so um, if, if you take those words seriously, uh, then uh, if Jesus said, this is my body, he didn't say, well, this represents my body. He supposedly said, this is my body. Now, I personally find that whole passage suspect. Um, and the, the reason I find it suspect is because if there is any one thing that we can say about Jesus, if we accept that there was historically someone in that era, in that cultural setting named Jesus, who attracted a band of followers, who preached the kingdom of God, and who ended up one of countless men crucified in that era. And if we accept that as true, then the one thing that we know for sure about him was that 
He was a Jew talking to other Jews. Now, there are many teachings attributed to Jesus in the gospel accounts that I find credible teachings because they reflect, yes, that's what a Jewish reform-minded rabbi would say. I can believe that. There are other things that are attributed to Jesus that just come out of an alien culture, the culture of the newly emerging Christian church. This is why there is such a difference between the synoptic gospels, which deal with Jesus, yes, as a divine figure, but also as a rabbi, and the gospel of John, which is a it's, it, it is much more simple in its content. It came later. It was the last written of the gospel accounts, the most distant in time removed from Jesus' life. And it is really, um, uh, in, in, and in the gospel of John, Jesus becomes a kind of a spokesperson for emerging church doctrine, which we don't see in the synoptic gospels. So when you say, well, Jesus in the Bible, there are at least two different Jesuses in the Bible. There is the, there, there is the reform-minded rabbi who is preaching the kingdom of God, who is, wants, who, who is predicting um, uh, the, the reemergence, uh, the reestablishment of Israel as a light unto the nations, guided by uh, principles of justice and mercy. Uh, and then there is the doctrinal, the church doctrinal Jesus that we see in the Gospel of John. At least two different characters called Jesus. So when you say Jesus in the Bible, which one are you talking about? Interesting. Is is similarly to how the Old Testament God and New Testament God seem to be bipolar versions of one another? They're very, very well. They, in in the, in the Greek scriptures, the New Testament, God hardly appears at all. Yes, but, I, but I, as I represented a, by the Gospel of Jesus, He's a loving God. He's a turn the other cheek God, and that ain't the God that's described in the Old Testament. Absolutely not. Yeah, Correct. definitely different. All right. Well, this leads me to another question, which I think might um, put us right back also onto this point of certainty. And um, I wanted to ask about, you know, in in it, since you brought it up, and because we are discussing, you know, the very origin story of Christian apologetics and Christian thought, what. How did the, this this Council of Nicene, which I, I guess, as you say, is the first successful, like, okay, here's the dogma, here's what we're doing, here's how we move forward. How were they conducting themselves? I mean, was this a was were this a bunch of bishops meeting around a stone table, bringing all their 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 scrolls, or what? How did they sit down and figure out this is what we're doing? Uh, I can't. I can't answer that. I, okay. I don't know. Okay. I don't know the physical setting in which you know, <laughs> the physical setting. I, I I believe, and I think that this is reasonable. Yeah. That they each brought perspectives based upon the scriptures as they existed at the time that they knew at the time, and they were trying to reconcile the. Uh, the problems that emerged. And the first huge problem was how to establish 
the divinity of Jesus without straying into polytheism. That they had to therefore say, Jesus is God. You see, if if you say, let's say you, you were talking about an earthly king, and the king had a son. So, you know, there was king so and so the first, and his son became king so and so the second. They're both regal, they're both king, they're both monarchs, but they're two different people. Yeah. But you can't say that about God and the Son of God. They cannot be two different people, because if they are, that's polytheism. So Trinitarianism was essentially the the, the doctrinal church's way around polytheism by allowing Jesus to be the son of God and God because by Trinitarian doctrine the son one of the three Trinitarian persons is God and God is the son so you can so although it sounds strange when we put the two statements right together so you're saying God is the Son, God is God, and God is also the Son of God. So the Son of God is also God, God is his own Son. It all sounds ridiculous when we put them together that way, but that is in the essence what Trinitarian doctrine is about. And then now notice that again, we have not yet accounted for the Holy Spirit. I'm I'm missing an understanding as to how and why the Holy Spirit was even a necessary component. Oh, because it's mentioned, because the Holy Spirit is is mentioned in the Bible. So what does it mean? Okay. So they had to have a meaning for it. Got it. Now, it's a kind of a vague concept, and until the uh, Nicene Council put its final stamp of approval on this is exactly what we mean and what we believe the holy spirit was a vague concept and it you know there there wasn't that much attention paid to the holy spirit but after the 19 council you see an interesting phenomenon take place hymnists started writing hymns to the holy spirit because now he's a full-fledged member of the Trinity. Mm-hmm. There wasn't some vague add-on thought. Well, there's the Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit. Well, who is that? You know? Right. Um, well, it makes sense from the point of view of wanting to establish something that was going to move forward, that they would want to standardize the belief set. And and we know from you know what happened you know, a millennium later, uh, when you allow people to stray from that belief set, when you officially sanction other versions, you get all these denominations. I mean, you open that floodgate and suddenly you got a thousand different versions of... Yes, yes, you do. And you know, and, and and moreover, to, to, I don't want to keep harping too much on this, but when you have all those diverse doctrinal views how can anyone be certain how can anyone have certainty 
This is why the need, the, you spoke of emotional needs. Yes, it is. The emotional need for certainty demands uniformity of belief. That's right. Which so is the, why which is why to establish the thing and really get it. Because when it splits up, you know, like I said, a millennium later, right? When we get to Calvin and Luther much, much, much later in this, you know, in the in the tale, you've already got this established thing that is that is basically taken over Europe in terms of religious thought and you know good chunks of the rest of the world the known civilized world at that point so the split up the breakup was almost inevitable because it became this bureaucratic sprawling structure that had many different you know uh variations depending on how people were going about doing their thing oh, and yeah i mean, I mean it, it, it's interesting to ask if the church had not been um, shot through with the corruption that was Martin Luther's main complaint. Yep. Would there have been a Reformation? And maybe so, because uh, the Reformation was not just about, well, end this corruption. No, it was not. But, well, as long as we're going to end this corruption, here's a bunch of doctrinal differences that, that we have to establish. Right. Yeah, there were foundational differences in the belief structure because it shifted, it, as I understand it, it shifted the, the responsibility and the, and the power dynamic of the Catholic Church shifted from the priests and the nuns and the, and the whole structure to, no, they're human too. And for a long time, they were regarded as, you know, extra, you know, above human status because they were the deliverers of the of the holy word, and that was part of the pushback. Was no, these guys are as fallible as anybody else, and and it's the and all of us have the ability to read and interpret these these scriptures and 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 you know and 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 come to the same conclusions I've come to as Martin Luther. One, two, three, four, five is what's actually true, you know? Absolutely. I mean, for example, um, if the church was intolerant of heresy, and heresy is defined as rejection of dogma. Yep. Dogma is the subset of doctrines. Doctrines are teachings. Dogma is the subset of doctrines that are essential teachings, that there are teachings, you accept them, maybe you have some questions, but dogma you cannot question, you may not question. To question dogma is the crime called heresy. Right. Right. So, and, and heresy, of course, was punishable by death. So, when the Reformation started, and um, we were no longer necessarily trusting the priests and the papacy to define dogma was that an end to the problem of heresy well of course not john calvin who led the church in geneva was instrumental in rooting out heresy Probably his most notable victim was Michael Servetus, 
who was a scholar in many fields, but had questions, serious questions about church dogma. He was burned at the stake. Yep. So, um, I mean, nothing really changed with the Reformation. The, the focus changed from priests and the sacraments to the infallibility of the Bible. And as I mentioned last time, um, uh, the, the, the Protestant tenets of sola fide and sola scriptura, there, there are five solas in, that define Protestantism, but those two, only faith, only the Bible, are the keys really? Yeah, exactly. Uh, that, that define it. Um, I I thought maybe if, if you know if if you agree that in uh, the remaining time we have, uh, perhaps we could um, look a little at a certain specific apologetic arguments. You know, we've talked about um, uh, presuppositionalism, yep. um, but. Um, there are others that are quite common, and I thought maybe we could spend just a few minutes um, looking at those and keeping in mind, again, that the real purpose of apologetics is to reassure believers. It's not to convince unbelievers. It's to reassure believers yes. who start having questions. So um, among the most common uh, is the question, well... Hitler was an atheist. Stalin was an atheist. Yes. <laughs> I'm glad you're bringing Look, this up. This is so tired. I hear this over and over again. Yes. Uh, so this is ultimately what's called a two quoque argument. You while you too, which in essence is Christianity saying, well, yeah, we had crusades and inquisitions and slaughterhouses and slaughters and, and pogroms and all of that. But, you know, if we're scumbags, you're just as we're bad scumbags as we are. Yeah. Uh, which is hardly an argument. In any case, it's a kind of a phony argument for, for the following reasons. Uh, whether Hitler was an atheist is highly debatable. Um, historians can cite evidence, real evidence, pointing in both directions. Yes, he was. No, he wasn't. And rather than get into that, I'll simply point out that his, um, the genocide that he created, that he caused, was not theological so much uh, as it was social political. Mm -hmm. He regarded himself as the savior of Germany, uh, which was reeling under the uh, impact of what had happened after World War One, mm -hmm. um, and for the for for Stalin, who was an atheist, although he had some uh, churchly education as a, as a as a child, but yes, he was an atheist, absolutely. But again, the exterminations that he carried out were not for purposes of establishing atheism or wiping out religion. It was for purposes of political control. That's right. 
That's right. And these are very, these might sound like hair splitting for some people, but they're oh, not. These are really important points. Absolutely. One last point about it is yeah. that Hitler and Stalin and Pol Pot, and Pol Pot was a lunatic. He, he was a full-fledged, regarded himself as God, lunatic. Yeah. Their, the, the murders, the mass murders that they caused to be carried out, they didn't carry them out personally. They had other people do them. Who were the other people who did them? Who were the people in Germany, in Poland, in Russia, who carried out all those deaths, those murders? For the most part, they were Christians. He didn't get an, an army of atheists to commit these crimes. Right. They were carried out by Christians. Right. Okay. So, I mean, the business about Stalin and Hitler is... It's a it's a specious argument at best, but it's 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 thrown around too often to ignore because it's just so. It, it, but it is so such, such a silly argument. The points you make about intent are vital. They are very very important, and in terms of actual physical evidence of this that I always point to when it comes to Hitler. Um, you know, a lot of people don't know that, you know, some of some of the, the reason the, the Nazis look so stylish, <laughs> even to this day, you look at some of those uniforms, you're just like, God damn, those guys really look like badasses, even though even those stupid skulls and crap on their hats. Um, this was stuff that was, these are uniforms were designed by fashion designer. Hugo Boss designed that stuff. I mean, Hitler was all over making these guys look the part that he wanted them to look. And guess what was on, inscribed on the belt buckle of every German soldier in the field? It said, God, God mit uns. with us. Right? God is with God, us. God mit uns. God with us. That's what was right on there, right? It was part of the uniform. So to That's assert what? that Hitler was coming at this from a, you know, that he was engaged in an atheist-driven war or that his... His uh, belief set on a religious plane is what drove him, and his armies is just is just empirically wrong. You just, you just there's no real substance, you know, substance to it. That's that's correct. Uh, yeah. So let, let me turn quickly to uh, another very common one. Uh, without God, without the Bible, there is no objective basis for morality. Oh my God! Oh my God! Please <laughs> yeah. let me hear what you have to say on this one. Okay, first of all, whenever a theist makes this argument, which is like every day. Yeah, unfortunately. They are never talking about morality. They are always talking about legality. Yep. Not morality, but legality. And what is the basis of their legality? The Bible. And yet, they themselves ignore Bible legality. How do I know they ignore it? Actually, because let me, let me... they aren't in jail because they aren't confined to a psychiatric institute. That's how I know that they ignore it. All right. Now, let's let's clarify for everybody. What do you mean when you say it's not morality, it's legality? What's your, what's your point there? When cultures in, in primitive times and human beings formed communities, it was... Uh, a tremendous survival advantage. 
to live in communities. Mm-hmm. And it was quickly understood that there are certain behaviors that could not be tolerated in a community. They just couldn't. You can't just say, well, I'm angry at you, so I killed you. Mm-hmm. That's just not tolerable. So laws were quickly passed to prevent certain actions that would be immediately lethal to the cohesiveness of the community. Mm-hmm. That's legality. Now, morality is something different. Morality is attitudes about things that are wrong, but those things do not necessarily pose immediate existential threats to the community. For example, how often we equate morality with sexual morality, especially when morality is dis- is discussed by theists. Well, sexual morality, it's not that it is um, uh, irrelevant. Uh, and at one time, these things were laws. They most assuredly were laws. They were laws in the Old Testament. But society evolves. Evolution is a social process as well as a biological process. Correct. And as we saw that certain types of behavior, people may sniff with dissatisfaction at them, with distaste at them, but they don't actually pose an existential threat to the community. It is those kinds of behaviors that are really the focus of morality, because if they posed an existential threat, they would be the subject of legality. That's an interesting distinction. Okay, fair enough. I think a lot of people equate those two things one with another. So when they they talk about, oh yeah, so when theists talk about morality and an objective basis for morality, they're talking about their holy book, their sacred book. That's right. And I know, again, I know that they are not following the morality of their sacred book because they're not in jail. Because right. anyone who did follow the legality or morality, whatever you want to call it, the dictates of this sacred book, that person would be in jail. Well, I'll tell you a place where you can find a more conforming view of biblical legality would be in the Middle East. Yes. And yeah, we... it, it would be it would it would not necessarily be um in um uh, biblical but Quranic uh, legality. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, there, there are um, there there are Middle Eastern uh, Islamic fundamentalist states where the dictates of the sacred book, the Quran, um, are the law. They are legality, and it's horrifying. And I cannot help but mention that. Christian dominionists in America admire that. Exactly. They don't admire the Quran, but they want they want a theocracy based right. upon their own sacred book, the Bible. That's right. I mean, there are pastors here in America. There's that guy, Stephen, what's his name? Uh, 
uh, a couple of those guys, Dan Ferguson as well, I think. These guys, Josh Ferguson, I think his name is. These guys who uh, um, get famous on YouTube for their uh, rather extremist rants. And that uh, that Stephen guy was, uh, I can't remember his last name, but he goes on at a mad rate about how homosexuals should be killed. because Not because he wants that necessarily. He only wants it because it's what God wants, because it's right in the Bible. It says this is what you do. And, you know, this is what it says. So, therefore... And why isn't he stoning... Why isn't he outside stoning gay people? Exactly. Because he doesn't want to go to jail. Ah, right. Exactly yeah. so. You know, the most interesting thing about it, when you confront theists with that very question, why aren't you out? They will say, well, you have to understand that those rules were written at a certain time in the past at a certain culture. So, on the one hand, they're claiming objective morality, and on the other hand, they are excusing themselves on the basis of fluid morality, morality exactly. that is culturally determined. That's right. It's called cultural relativism because it's relative one culture to another, which is a exactly. much more... Which, which is a much more honest and, and nuanced take on how we deal with morality. But, of course, you know, of course. Yeah. So, you know, so um, I, I just want to tell very, very briefly on one last commonly heard uh, apologetic, yeah, um, sure. which, which is the fine-tuning argument why God must exist because it's impossible that life could have emerged. It is so unlikely uh, that, the, that the universe is so precisely fine-tuned for life to exist. That God is the only possible explanation. Now there is an answer to that. It's an interesting argument, but there is an answer to that. Modern cosmologists look at models of a cycle of universes. We live in a universe, but it is just one of an infinitude of universes that exist in an eternal cycle. The cycle has no beginning, no end. It is eternal, as eternal as God is supposed to be. But each universe is all we can experience. We are experiencing a universe that happens to be tuned, let's say, so that creatures such as ourselves could have emerged. But, it, but if you accept the idea of an infinitude of universes in an eternal cycle, that's inevitable. With an infinitude of universes, there has to be universes that are fine-tuned exactly as ours is. There's also an infinitude of universes that are tuned differently. Now, the idea of a cycle of universes, an infinite cycle of universes, is not provable, at least not now. Mm -hmm. But it is possible. And if it is possible, then the notion that God is the only possible answer is false. To which I will add one last comment. If I accepted 
the theistic view that God is the answer. God is eternal. The universe has a finite history, but God is eternal. God is forever. God has always existed. Then, up to the moment that God snapped his divine fingers and poofed the universe into existence, he was nowhere. There wasn't any place. There wasn't any time. He was alone in nothingness, not empty space, in literal nothingness. And he had been in nothingness forever. And that I, might explain his bad temper. <laughs> yes, it might. Yes, it might. Okay. There, there are other ways of interpreting that that uh, reality, but I, I get your point there, and I think that's a funny punchline. Yes. Okay. So anyway, those were those are at least some of the um, more common uh, apologetic arguments that 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 we encounter. Yeah. And, and I think it's worth noting, again, that the main audience for them being believers, right. they will eagerly, willingly, and eagerly swallow what the apologists offer them because they want to be reassured. Right. That's right. And that's a, and that's a, that's a um, you know, as we've gone over so many times on, the, on my shows, you know, a, a complicated, nuanced uh, problem for human beings, but actually reduces down to a very simple thing, which is simply, we want to believe and therefore we believe. And to the degree that we want to believe is to the degree that we will believe. There so are- it's, mag it's magical thinking. I want it to be so, so it is. That's right, exactly. And that's, you know, and it's unfortunately that way in many, many aspects of our lives, not just religion, although we see it most prominently in religion because religion is something that you can push back on most easily when you are trying to have evidence-based or, you know, physical universe reality-based conversations and, and ideas, and you want to believe true things, and yet you find there really isn't anything that you can grasp and hold on to that will absolutely positively um, you know, undeniably and irrevocably prove that these faith-based ideas are true. They just don't really have that. You just have to accept it because you want to. Mm -hmm. And there, and at the end of the day, after everything we've talked about here for the last hour and a half, at the end of the day, I really got nothing to say about people having belief because they want to have it. I just wish they'd be a little bit more honest about their motivations and, and intentions behind it because it's okay to believe for the purposes of comfort, purposes of reassurance, purposes of answering questions that we don't have answers to. If you want to believe that God is the source of all and, and he's going to comfort you in your afterlife, go right ahead. But when those kind of beliefs inform, as we touched on very briefly here in the show, when those ideas and beliefs inform, you know, laws and rules and societal guidelines that I now have to follow, even though I don't share your beliefs, I, you know, this is where, this is my basis for pushing back on some of that stuff. And that's why we have these involved, interesting, very interesting conversations about, you know, the nature of belief and the justification and rationalization for belief. I find this stuff fascinating you know, from a psychological perspective. But we have to maintain a little perspective, I think, that this is just stuff that exists in people's heads. 
<laughs> and and when we use that to abuse one another, to you know, to engage in violence against one another, I think somehow we've lost our way and we're doing it wrong. And that's and that's that's my basis. And, and for coming and I, and this. I should point out, and I, and I mean this sincerely, there are thoughtful Christians who would agree with what you and I have said just now. Yep. They they are just as um, disturbed by the inroads of hyper-religiosity yep. into civic matters of law and education. They are just as concerned about those things as we are. Yep, I agree. I've actually met and spoke to some of them, and they've given me a great deal of perspective on you know, on some of the, some of the stuff that some, maybe they've helped temper some of the more extreme statements that come out of the atheist community about believers as well, because you find that there is a, a world of, of a great deal of nuance out there when it comes to religious ideas. But this stuff we talk about, I think, as we've taken great pains to try to, to make clear, we're really addressing the extremist side of that problem. And, you know, yeah, the, the most heavily doctrinal side, the most yeah. heavily scripture dependent and the most heavily dependent upon church doctrine. Exactly. Because as we as we both pointed out in our own way during this show, it's the problem with that isn't the belief. The problem is the lack of critical thinking that that belief creates because of that certainty, that insistence that this is the only right answer and there is no other right answer possible and when you get not, to that yes, headspace and, and perhaps the last word to point out about that mindset is that not only is it this is the answer there is no other possible answer to have doubt is to endanger your own salvation there you go exactly it's just not it, it's just not healthy psychology. <laughs> I'm just telling you guys, it's not. Lived it, been there, done that. You know, I think Stephen's somewhat similar, and we see this and we just go, no, we need to push back. And so that's what this is about. So I hope that with all of that, um, you know, you guys got something out of this show. Stephen, thank you very much for taking the time again to uh, share it was, your... It was a lot of fun. I, I had a wonderful time and I appreciate your having me back on the program. Uh, again, it was a very gratifying response um, uh, after the... Uh, show that you and I did a few weeks ago. Uh, and I'm hopeful that uh, your viewers will uh, get something out of today's talk also. Big time, big time. And folks out there, I actually do want to know what you thought. You know, um, you know, did we ramble? Did we go off on tangents you didn't want to hear? Was there interesting stuff? Did you want to hear more about any aspect of what we were talking about, whether it was the certainty thing, whether it was the Trinity, whether it was some aspects of the dogma or the doctrines that we brought up or the apologetics, any anything at all that you want to ask us more about or, or you want to see more content on, I am more than happy to try to help deliver that to you guys. So let us know in the feedback in the comments what you thought. Uh, so with that, of course, I will also uh, let you all know that I do have another link, just like last time in the show notes to Stephen's book and uh, website, so you guys can check his work out directly uh, using that, and I encourage you to do so. Thanks. Absolutely. So, uh, folks out there, I'll see you guys next week. Thanks for inviting us into your home. Bye-bye. Okay, bye.